This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. We're having a few technical difficulties this morning. But uh, I wonder if everybody online can hear. Great. I brought my phone in here because I thought I might have to use the phone, but now it's like bothering me. <laughs> so I'm going to try and turn it on. Focus. Do not disturb on. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I found this feature on my phone and I turned it off, and then I didn't get any messages from anybody. And I was like, wow. That was, that was new. Oh. So a few weeks ago, I gave a Dharma talk about Zen practice, (laughs) and I didn't feel very complete after giving that talk. And a bunch of people afterwards had a bunch of questions, so I thought, well, I'm going to continue in this vein and talk about what is Zen practice. So because I don't really listen to talks that I've given, uh, after I give them, and I kind of can't remember what I said. I, uh, the, the talks were just recently posted on the website. I think it was posted just a couple days ago. So I used a program that is a transcription program to like play it and transcribe it so that I wouldn't have to actually listen, <laughs> listen to the whole thing. Uh, but um, <laughs> so I played it and left the room, and then I went back and looked at the transcription and uh, the transcription said, uh, relayed this story about how I think I started the talk by saying that I was speaking to our administrator, Maida, and she asked, I said, oh, I, have, I, I need to leave, I have to go prepare a talk. And she said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, Zen practice. You know, and I, it was kind of funny at the time. It's like, what else do you talk about at a Zen center? <laughs> but then looking at the transcription, <laughs> It said, you know, it had this whole story, and it said, you know, the administrator asked what I would, what are you going to talk about? And the answer was Xanax. (laughs) 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 And so I was like, all right, Xanax is like an anti-anxiety medicine. (laughs) So, so this is uh, this is the heart of our (laughs) Zen practice is. showing up to what's happening in the moment and sometimes what's happening in the moment is not how you what you think is supposed to happen or what should oh that word what should be happening or you know all of that stuff comes up in uh, moment after moment especially when when we are thrown into the feeling realm you know the the three feelings in buddhism are pleasant unpleasant and neutral right that all experiences you can say in a human experience fall into one of those three. Right? Pleasant being like, things are going the way I think they should go. <laughs> Unpleasant being, no, they're not, and something's wrong, and it should be this way, or it shouldn't be that way. Right? So aversion, so uh, something that we're, we're drawn to, we want to go towards the pleasant, and then the unpleasant we want to get away from, as, you know, maybe as quickly as possible. So pleasant, unpleasant. And then the third feeling tone is the one of neutral, which really when you think about neutral, we don't even notice neutral sometimes. <laughs> because when things get really neutral, then we go into aversion, which is you know, a certain form of aversion, which is called boredom. Right? So we want things to be just right, Goldilocks. Right? We're, all, we're all Goldilocks. So this is the human condition, and Zen practice is all about being human and being open to our human existence and our experience. And uh, I think I mentioned in that last talk, you know, why do people even come to Zen centers, really? Like, why do people come to a Zen center? Because they're, in some ways, they're unsatisfied with something in their life. There's something that, there's a struggle, there's a quest, there's a yearning for something that is meaningful and true, something authentic, in our, in our world, uh, in this world that we call uh, me, in our life. 
And that's what brings us to a Zen center and brings us to uh, any practice center, really, is this feeling of wanting to uh, be true and real and authentic. And maybe, hopefully, to live a wholehearted, ethical life. Now, of course, some people come to Zen centers because, you know, for other reasons. Um, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> so, also, uh, in the meantime, since the last Dharma talk that I gave, we had some beautiful practices here. We had a, a Sangha work day that was uh, intended to help set up for a very large for our center's size, a very large conference. We had 42 Zen teachers and uh, students come and from the branching streams lineages, this, uh, the Soto Zen lineages in the tradition of Shunryu Suzuki Roshi, which Austin Zen Center is a, one of the branching streams. And we hosted a beautiful conference with tw- over 20 sanghas. There are, I think, 75 sanghas that are part of branching streams. So there's 75 across the world sanghas that are practicing in this particular lineage of, which is a particular lineage of Soto Zen, which is a particular lineage of Zen, which is a particular form of Buddhist practice, which is a particular form of human beings being alive practice. So it's all nestled into uh, what is this human life and how do we live it and what, uh, what can we do or, or avoid doing to help us be our true selves and hopefully not suffer as much as we do or at least to not suffer unnecessary suffering right. so in that Dharma talk or in that uh, Branching Streams conference we did a lot of work on healing and uh, that we did some healing circles which is an exercise of being open to vulnerability we had a afternoon of poetry of using uh, or using poems as a vehicle for expression which is again some a, a form of practice that's very you know poems are not usually very analytical right they're impressionistic there are they're not trying to say this is this statement is true, this statement is false. They're, they're fingers pointing at something, fingers pointing at the moon. And so through these those two modalities, we kind of got back together as uh, you know as Dharma brothers and sisters from the li- same lineage uh, on that first day. And then we spent a day doing some deep ecology investigations on how to be in the world. And then we had a reception here, which I thought was fantastic. We had a number of the people from the conference come, and uh, Austin Zen Center, all the people who came for the workday, and the people who came to help set up and clean and cook for the the beautiful reception that we held. The conference itself, we had to hire, we had to uh, rent a space in South Austin because we can't, we couldn't accommodate that many people here. But all of that activity, putting on this event, doing this event in, uh, with a particular feeling tone, right, of really taking care of our family, our extended family, which, you know, when you really think about extended family, you and I and everyone in this, on this planet are all extended family, right, and actually even maybe way beyond this planet extended family. We're all part of this one universe unfolding. So it gives us this opportunity, having this conference really was so lovely because it gave us the opportunity to kind of rally support from the Sangha. So the amount of work that went into it in terms of carrying out the logistical details, we had a number of board members who were on the committees to help plan the, the conference and volunteers who said, I'm willing to come pick people up from the airport and transport them all over the place. Sometimes, like, what, three times in one day <laughs> at odd hours of the night as that was, like, the day the conference started on the day that all the thunderstorms came through and apparently Houston Airport was closed down, so everything was being diverted through Austin, and it was bonkers. 
right? But in that bunker, I mean, most of the time in our lives, in our day-to-day lives, we spend a lot of effort trying to control our life, right? Trying to control how things, like how fast things come at us, <laughs> right? And um, I am super guilty of this, right? This planning mind that wants to make sure everything's planned down to the exact detail ahead of time so that like when I show up to give a Dharma talk, the Zoom's working, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? So all of this effort that we put into it like, what came out of that effort? You could say, oh, it was a great conference. What if the conference had had to be canceled? What if it all sucked and we all were like, oh, what a drag that was? <laughs> would that have made it a failure? Would, our, would that reflect, oh, you're not? <laughs> it might have made the conference, a, you know, well, the conference didn't happen. We can say, well, that kind of means it was a failure, right? But in terms of the amount of... Uh, like what's the what's the real point of it all? Relationship. Right. It's relationship. It's actually being able to put our take our practice off the cushion into the world and with one another. Because that's really where the rubber hits the road. Right? I mean you can go off into the you know, the mountaintop and find your you know, your hard rock is at your cushion. But there's always coming down off the mountain, right? You need to come down off the mountain at some point. So you need to get off your cushion and take your practice out into the world, whatever world that is, whether it's the world that's in your own garden at home and you're taking care of your plants and the, you know, the birds and the bees that come through your garden, whether it's you know, going to your stressful corporate job that's like people are always demanding things from you and nothing's ever right and nobody's doing the job that they're supposed to and the software sucks, right? It's all of it. It's whatever, the world itself becomes your practice place, your dojo, your zendo, right? When you practice zen, there's not this distinction. So I just want to thank everyone who showed up and just thank everyone for, your, for being here today and for your practice, wherever your practice happens to be. Right? Whether it's, uh, you know, you're here for the first time and your practice is just like, I'm going to go check out the Zen Center because I'm curious about what this is. What does it mean? Right? All the way to you're planning your next, you know, 10-day Vipassana retreat or whatever it is whatever it is that you're doing, um, to basically to carve out some time to think about, or not think really, but to be in the presence of this, uh, an environment like this whose sole function is to, to have a safe place for people to actually do this work called practice, self-study. Right? Studying the causes and conditions, i.e. karma, of, every, of our life, and letting go of karma and stepping into the next moment with a, um, you know, what's happening now? And how do I, how can I be in this moment? Not how should I be, I mean, there's, you know, we'll, we'll bring the should all over, you know, everywhere. Um, uh, someone recently asked this question of me of like, what's the difference between these different kinds of self, right? From in the, you know, in Zen, we talk about no self, and then there's also this idea of authentic self. And then from other perspectives, there's this concept of you know, your best self. And like, are these the same? Are they different? They seem paradoxical. Like, what, what, is, what are all these selves? And it's like, yeah, we, we, all of them are present. Our authentic self, our, uh, our best self, and then ultimately dropping all of the conceptions that we have and no self. There's no self, right? So, anyway, that's all by means of an introduction um, to getting back to this question of like, what is Zen practice and what are, and uh, so I outlined a couple of the elements. How many people here today were not at that talk? Okay, a few of you. Um, so I, I, you know, I outlined a couple of some of the main points of Zen practice and I, uh, since then, uh, several people, I've talked to several people and they've brought up their own uh, you know, questions and comments and people posted on our 
EZC, you know, has a chat server on Discord that's like our, you know, discussion groups and, you know, what's going on at the center. We've got like, you know, certain study groups that are kind of private channels on there and general channels and social justice channels and, you know, a bunch of different things. And uh, it gets, you know, fairly good traffic, but not necessarily, not everyone knows about it. So anyway, that's on there. And, and after I gave that talk, some people posted about the talk and uh, uh, one of our members posted a, an article by Norman Fisher called something like, What is in Practice? And it was great. It was a great article, and I'm going to quote from it later on in this, in this talk as well. So oftentimes Zen practice is you know, broken into two different kinds. There's two things that are really fundamental, Zazen and what's called work practice or uh, the sitting practice, the stillness that you bring to your body and mind. Zazen, in Zazen practice, it's just sitting, shikantaza, and the emphasis is very, very much on not thinking and really paying attention to your posture. Right? So having an upright posture, a very careful attention to how you hold your mudra, how you hold the back of your neck, how your crown is extending to the, to the sky. All of that is part of, and like, why is that? Does it really matter? I mean, if you just sit, some meditation styles, it's like, it doesn't really matter what you're doing with your body. It's really what you're doing is you're following a very specific path structure in your mind, right? There's lots of forms of meditation. Is one better than the other? Maybe for some things but ultimately for all things, no. Right? But our school teaches uh, shikantaza, just sitting. Now, of course, that's kind of misleading, right? I think I talked about this a little bit in my, uh, in my other talk, but I just wanted to point out that the posture is something that becomes the focus of attention, posture and breath, and then what's happening also in the mind. It's not thinking, though. It's a non-analytic practice. And when we sit with attention to our posture, you know, you're given instructions like, you know, how to hold your mudra. You're not told why you're holding your mudra this way. You're not told why for almost anything, which is very challenging for, especially for newcomers who are really keen to learn what's going on here. And, and, and maybe even more so, more than what's going on, is this something that I think would be good for me <laughs> in my life? Is this helpful? Is it going to be useful? And very little detail is given around like the why of it. Well, you should do it this way, right? And then you have to come to Dharma talks and you know, maybe people will join you in the weeds of like, well, this is why and that's, you know, that's not why and so forth. And you ask questions and you meet with teachers and you ask them questions, right? This is, a, this is all part of Zen practice is to go through this inquiry with spiritual friends who are on the path along with you and with people who are, you know, maybe ahead of you in the path in terms of they've just been, they've been doing it longer and they have some realization, right? And we call them teachers. So, so the, the two elements, the fundamental elements of Zen practice, it has been said, are Zazen, number one, silent uh, meditation, and work practice, taking that meditation off the cushion into activity. Sometimes it's just described as it's sitting practice and sweeping the temple courtyard. How dull. <laughs> I want to bring my practice out into the world. I want to be able to save all beings. Like, what is this, you know, focus on where my fingers fall when I'm sitting in meditation? You know, what does that have to do with? living an authentic life. Good question. <laughs> well, it turns out that sweeping the temple courtyard, the, the temple courtyard doesn't end at the temple gate. Right? It actually extends into the entire universe, which makes it actually impossible to sweep the whole thing. And yet, if you've noticed, we, we continually vow to do just that. Right, in our four immeasurable vows, right? beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Right? Dharma gates are, are boundless. I vow to enter them. So in, in, these, in these four vows, we're constantly saying, I'm going to do this thing that is absolutely, from our rational mind, completely impossible. 
Now, <laughs> if you come at that with your kind of usual like ego focused should this, you know, this is my outline for my how I'm going to live my next five years so that I'll be successful and if you go at it with a certain kind of gaining mind, like you're going to be checking things off the, you know, checking the boxes and making sure you get everything taken care of and done and then and after then you will be happy. <laughs> if that's the orientation, that, that orientation doesn't take, doesn't last very long before it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is not going to work. Right? If I'm, you know, it would be a matter of setting oneself up for failure. Which, you know, good news in Zen, failure is actually like, you know, I don't know if you all, if you've heard of Mark, Mark Lesser, one of the Zen teachers in our lineage, he, uh, you know, he's, I, I hear his voice when I see, hear the word failure, it's like, failure, yay, <laughs> like, fail better, like, let's fail, um, because failure is actually when we push up against something and it's not working, that's where we learn, that's where shifting happens, right? Um, in that talk, I, so I talked a lot about our formal the practice, and this is uh, one of my favorite topics, not topics, it's in terms of talking about, but forms, the forms of practice, this sort of the minutia of how to do everything, like <laughs> anything you can think of doing, there's like minutia <laughs> for how to do it, in, starting with sitting, right, starting with taking care of your posture and Opening And, you know, you can say that there are reasons for taking care of your posture in this particular way. That sitting in a particular posture is kind of, there's an ideal posture for the, the most able-bodied young of us, which is like full lotus. But then there's like the reality of our posture and our body, right? So, but taking care of the posture that you have, right? And not picking and choosing. Oh, well, I can't, you know, I don't have the perfect, you know hips, so I can't actually, you know, do that posture, I might as well not, you know, Zazen's not for me, right, it's not that, that would be such a sad thing, right, so the forms are the particular, particular details that we, that we have to anchor us in the present, right, and whether we step into the zenda with our left foot or our right foot, it doesn't really, that doesn't really matter, but when you're with community and there's an agreed upon convention, we're stepping in with the foot that's closest to the door jam that you're next to, right? That being like, okay, that's the suggestion. Most of you probably have never heard that before, and that's fine, right? Because it's no one's watching you. <laughs> Did they come in on the right foot, right? But a lot of the stuff is kind of, you know, when we're chanting together, for example, um, unless you're chanting. Like, people will hear you, and your chanting will become part of the entire, the chanting of the room. And so, in terms of how to chant with your, you know, from your hara, without holding it up, really up here, how to harmonize, to chant with your ears so you can hear other people and harmonize with them, something is happening here. And we don't talk about it. Well, I do. <laughs> I'm talking about it right now. But, you know, something is happening when we attune to the community, to the Sangha, holding all these particular suggested forms of practice. And each temple is going to be different. They're going to be slightly different, right? So, for example, in sort of official Soto Zen Zendos, they don't have a statue of the Buddha in the Zendo because they have a separate room for that. It's called the Buddha Hall. <laughs> the Zendo doesn't even have the Buddha in it. The Zendo has Manjushri in it, and Manjushri sits in the middle of the room, and you don't cross in front of Manjushri. So there are these forms, and when you're in a temple with the, with the altar in the middle of the room, you will learn, like, oh, don't, don't cross in front of the altar. Go around the altar, for example. Does it, you know, in the sense of, you know, people will ask, does it really matter? What's the answer to that? Does it really matter? What does it depend on? I was just saying it depends. Whispering. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do you, you don't know your, what ori your orientation to it. If you're like you know, but you don't you sh you don't care. You know, 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, sometimes that's what happens, right? I mean, yeah, how many yeah. of us know <laughs> something? Yeah. Oh, you're supposed to do it this way, and we willfully don't do it that way. Ever done that? <laughs> I'm sure all of you have to have done that at some point. You know this is the thing you're supposed to do, and then you willfully don't do it. Is that not practice? Are you nodding like it is practice or it's not practice? It is practice. It is practice. Yeah. Because actually everything is practice. Because guess what? When you do that, you, something else happens in your body and mind. You, you, you know that you, I mean, even if no one's in the room, right? Even more so if there are people in the room, because then you're like, I'm willfully not, you know, I'm going to cross in front of the altar and, and not bow or whatever, whatever the form is, right? But that's all a mirror, right? This is all contrived to be a container that we bring ourselves in with all our, you know, karmic crap. <laughs> uh, all the, you know, the, uh, uh, the conditions of a human life. We bring them, we all bring them into this room together. We all bring them into this practice. And then, uh, and then we get to see it unfold. Right? It's kind of like winding up the little wind-up toy and like putting it into a group of other wind-up toys and seeing what happens. Right? And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's you know devastating, sometimes we uncover things that we're like, oh, I thought I was done with that, and yet here I am. I'm like a two-year-old again or a five-year-old, right? And it's not that we failed; it's that this isn't this is uh, to to be able to turn to all of what's happening in this loving container, maybe sometimes it doesn't feel so loving, but oftentimes its intention is to be, uh, you know, to give you a wide field, to give all of us a wide field, right? And then to see what happens in our body and in our mind, which are not actually separate. So the forms are one big aspect of Zen training, are these minute, minute details. And um, it's also one of the places where many, many people struggle. Right? Some people just love the forms. They get really into it. And then, I have to say, if you're a new student and you're really super into the forms, probably what's going to happen is you're going to start noticing other people's forms and judging them. <laughs> and that's going to be your practice. Right? If you're somebody who can't stand the forms and doesn't want to be told what to do and why are you telling me to hold my hands this way and you know, not to wear shorts in the zender or whatever it is, right? It's going to be, uh, you're going to have a different kind of practice, which is uh, how you work with feeling like you're doing something wrong and resenting it. Right? So when people say they don't like the forms or they're struggling with the forms, something in my heart, I will say, softens and I feel like oh that's great I'm so happy for you <laughs> really because I've been through it and uh, it's a dharma gate right? it's a dharma gate and I, I mentioned this the other day after you know after morning zazen we have this little circle and you know introduce ourselves and kind of like what we do after service um, but we were having this conversation um, uh, I I don't know if it was, it was about Bushin leaving, but he, uh, this topic came up of, I said something like this, really, maybe it's really hokey to bring this up, but I really do think, I see over and over and over again how, you know, I hear Mr. Miyagi, you know, in From the Karate Kid, you know, wax on, wax off, and I don't know what Ralph Macchio's name is in the movie, but he's like, he doesn't get it, like, why do I have to wash the cars this way, Ugh. You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Welcome to Zen. And it's intended not to make sense. In a certain way. To our rational, conceptual mind, it's intended not to make so much sense, which is kind of scary, right? Especially for us hyper-rationalists, me being one of them, right? To come into a place and be told, actually, you know, uh, that thing that you've relied on to get you through the world and keep you safe and that like you think of as leading you to truth and uh, perspective, yeah, let go of that. Who wants to do that? How, how does one go about saying, okay, I'm going to give that a try? 
right? It has to feel safe enough to give it a try. So how many of you have ever been asked to do anything at a Zen center? Yeah? Okay. When you are asked to do something, like, could you carry this bowl over there? <laughs> or could you uh, uh, refresh the flowers on the altar? Or dust the altar? Or uh, go take this, you know, take this broom and go sweep the front steps or something? When you're given a task at a Zen center, sometimes, you might say many times, if you're, it's, you're new to a Zen, a Zen center because it's so formal and it feels so... Uh, I don't want to say alien, but, you know, strict and formal, right? Um, that there's this kind of feeling of like, ah, oh, a little bit of anxiety, right? Am I going to do it right? I mean, obviously there's a right way and a wrong way, right? Recently somebody told me that I was, uh, they thought I was too perfectionist. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of, uh, I mean, I actually don't agree with it. I don't think I'm very perfectionist at all. But I do have strong, high standards, you know, and I'm aiming towards something that's like a, a thing, like when you wash the dishes, right? There's a goal <laughs> in washing the dishes that they don't have, like, crusty bits of food stuck on them when you're done, right? Or maybe if you're washing, like, a, you know, a wine glass or something like that, like there's, it's very easy to have spots, and your goal is to not have spots. I mean, maybe some people don't really care, but that's fine. But there's something in your life that you care about, right? Something that you're aiming towards. And forms are kind of like that. We're aiming towards this, this you know, uh, this thing, but it's not about the goal at all, even though sometimes it is. It's really about the body and the mind that you bring to it. And so all this emphasis is put on, like, concentrated great effort like you know like a good can like a good uh oil lamp you want to burn yourself out without creating a lot of smoke but like you know burn cleanly right there's a there's a huge like energetic component of zen of fully wholeheartedly throwing yourself into the task with complete utter devotion and effort and on top of that not to get so bent out of shape about it, not to get OCD about it, right? So there's the, you know, how do you do that? It's like we all know what it means to like throw ourselves into perfectionism, but how do you throw yourself into this kind of like you're aiming towards something, you're bringing your full body and mind into it, and you have to like not be bent out of shape when it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. So it's like, what's too tight, what's too loose? This is the middle way that we're all navigating in our lives. Right? Okay, well, I was a little bit too communicative that time. I said too much, or I didn't say enough. Right? Whether it's at home, at work, with friends, people you just meet, we're all navigating this. And we do this, uh, you know, when... Have you all seen The Karate Kid? <laughs> Has anyone here not seen The Karate Kid? Yeah. You've seen the scene though, right? No. Okay. It's such an 80s movie. Isn't it in the 80s? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so Mr. Miyagi is like, you know, teaching his young student. He doesn't have any other students. He's got this one student. He's teaching him. Uh, he's helping him out because there's this nasty karate student from the other dojo who's like a bully and there's also a love interest involved and so all that's, you know, all the elements of a movie are in there and, and uh, Mr. Miyagi agrees to sort of train young Daniel. Daniel. Thank you. <laughs> so Daniel shows up and is looking for like some training. He's like, hey, I've done the beginner's instruction. What's the next step? <laughs> or whatever it is. Right? He's coming for something special like tangible. He wants to learn how to fight so he can defend himself, defend the girl. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of, yeah, there's the, all the movie elements, right? And Mr. Biagi has him waxing his, like, somehow he's got this giant lot of, like, vintage cars. <laughs> that he's now, now uh, Daniel, is set about the task of buffing each of them with wax and wiping down the wax, right? And Mr. Miyagi comes in, and he's like, not like that. You have to do it like this. Like, instead of this, you know, he's doing different ways, and he's getting all bored, and like, what is the point of this? 
Oh, does this sound familiar? <laughs> and Mr. Miyagi comes in and he corrects his form. He says, you know, he actually grabs his hand, I think, and like moves his hand in the circle and it's like, like this, do it like this. And any kind of like, from Daniel, he's just like, this is my memory at least. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, it's revealed later on in the movie when uh, that all of this menial labor, like at the right moment, it's like, okay, Daniel, wax on, wax off. <laughs> Zen practice. Right? <laughs> It's amazing. And it's an embodied practice. It's a mental mind training practice. And, um, you know, we see these kinds of practices in all, all things. And actually, I would venture to say that no matter whether you think you're practicing, all of us are practicing something, whether we are attending it or not, right? We end up, you know, oh, this has been a hard week. Let me uh, crack open a bottle, smoke a spliff, lie down on the couch, and uh, just turn on, like, what? What do people want? The karate want? kid. The karate <laughs> 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 yes. Right? I mean, is there anything wrong with that? No. Did you, did you just say no? Oh. <laughs> Anyone else? Defense, like everything, right? No, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. Now, if you find that, you know, day after day, week after week, oh, say two years of, like, being socially isolated, that's what you've done with your two years, how do you think you feel <laughs> after doing it? Maybe not so good. Maybe you do. Maybe this is exactly what, the, you know, what, you, what you needed to do, right? But what I'm getting at is that what we do with our body and mind day in and day out is all practice for the next moment. We're sowing seeds. So, what seeds do you want to sow? And not to get too um, uh, neurotic about it, because we can. Right? That's something that you know, we can easily do, is get really neurotic about it. And maybe that's exactly where you need to be, is be neurotic about it. <laughs> right? Um, but if you're paying attention, in the next moment, you might be able to have uh, the opportunity to do a little bit of a course correction. Oh, too neurotic. Okay, maybe a little bit less. Oh, not enough neurotic. Maybe a little bit more. Right? But only when you're paying attention does that actually unfold. Now... Of course, sometimes uh, paying attention can be very challenging. And if you go into, uh, especially living, trying to manage or uh, account for all the many things in our lives, you know, you may be juggling a lot of different things. Then it's really hard. It's really hard to um, be present when there are conflicting things tugging at your attention. Right. How do you carve out that space to actually like, you know what, I'm going to let go of all the things or actually try to let go or, you know, give myself the opportunity even just the opportunity to let go because, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to let go. It's like, OK, let's see what happens. Oh, there it is again. Ah, oh, there it is again. There it is again. I can't let go of this thing that uh, is weighing on me or is creating this anxiety in me or that uh, is an anticipatory joyousness that I can't stop thinking about, like, you know, in a week I'm going to go on vacation, or whatever it is, right? How do you come back to the present, to like, okay, body and mind, what's happening now? And to ask that question in as much of a, uh, a space of curiosity and... Yeah, wonder, curiosity and wonder, right? Not, I'm going to try and figure this out and nail it down and, like, then take it and, like, I'm going to then, you know, apply it to, like, my program, my seven-step program for being my, you know, uh, whatever, I don't know, my best self, my, my, you know, 
and, and sometimes we do that too. But next moment, we breathe in, what's happening now? Now we exhale, let it go. Next moment, after exhaling fully, what happens after exhaling fully usually? <laughs> we inhale, we can't, kind of can't help it, right? We let it all back in. Okay, now what, what are we inhaling? What's happening now? Letting go of the last moment, it's, you know, and seeing like it carries over, not worrying about it though, not getting, uh, like when you're worried about it, or I should say, because sometimes worry comes up whether you are intending it to come up or not, but not uh, fostering worry about it. Right? So in the letting go, uh, if we can let go, we can let go of what we can you know, in that moment. What comes up next is to meet it freshly. Uh, I know I've mentioned this before, this practice in uh, yeah, one of the kitchen practices. So the kitchen is kind of like the second zendo in Zen. And in the kitchen, we have an altar. And when people are working together in the kitchen pre prepping, there's, you know, there's a lot of forms in the kitchen. Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> How do you cut the carrots? How do you stand when you chop? How do you treat the knife when you've got other people around? Do you, you know, how do you hold the knife when you're walking behind other people, you know? Um, how much noise do you make? Do you like take the, the ladle and whack it against the rim of the pot, you know, trying to, you know, fling the, the stuff that's still stuck to the ladle? Maybe you do that. And somebody, if you're lucky, you have somebody who, you know, comes over to you and says, that's not how we do it here. <laughs> or they just show you a different way, right? And, and then you get to feel this like, oh, why is this person telling me what to do? All of it, right? This is this is in practice. But one of the thing, practices in the kitchen, um, when you're serving a meal that's going to go somewhere, like if you're serving the meal for the people who are sitting in the meditation hall, or you're, you know, let's say you have guests coming and you're serving a meal that's going to be served outside, like for a Sangha workday, we have a potluck, and so, okay, the meal's going out, and uh, the practice is to offer the first bite of the meal to Manjushri. Okay, so we have this... Manjushri is in the zendo. Manjushri is the one, the young monk with the sword, and uh, who's cutting through delusions. So Manjushri sits in the zendo, and the first thing, you know, before we serve the meal to all the all the participants in the practice period or the sashin or the workday, you kind of prepare a little tiny rendition for Manjushri. There's a little bit of the, you know, the rice, a little bit of the soup, a little bit of the salad. You put little utensils out. I mean, it's really sweet. You put, you know, you make it very, it's, it's, it's kind of precious. Right. You do this, and you're like, I'm going to make this offering to Manjushri before everybody else eats. Manjushri, by the way, is, the, is called the head monk. And so he gets to eat first. So you like put this all together and then you make an offering, an incense offering, you bow and somebody you know, whose task it is takes that tray with the little bitty food in it and they, you know, they bow with it and then they ceremonially go on up, out on a procession to Manjushri and they bow and they set it down and sometimes there's like drumming that's happening, it's, it can be very dramatic um, or it can just be very simple or it can be something that you do in your mind can have no physical uh, manifestation, but you're basically this whole process. You're taking the effort, whatever effort that was brought by all the people in the kitchen, practicing their Zen in the kitchen by how they treat the vegetables, how they treat one another, whether they clean the compost out carefully. You know all the things, <laughs> all of the things, all of it goes into making this little offering. And when you bow, and the person who's taking the offering away to serve it to the statue, to the to Manjushri, cosmic Manjushri, right? when they take it away and you bow, it's like, this is my effort. Whatever it is, the potatoes are burned. You know, this person, this, you know, somebody didn't clean Manjushri's bowl from last time. What, you know, whatever it is, when you're bowing, it's like, that's the exhale. You're letting go of everything, your entire effort. Letting go of it, and it's being taken away as the offering. And then the next moment, you clean the kitchen. Or you eat. You sit down to eat. 
So there are so many little things in our practice together that um, that may not make sense, that may be completely like, you know, why do we do this? Um, to be curious about and to ask maybe, you know. That's what I would say, that's one of the main reasons that what I'm here for is to ask, to answer questions that people have, uh, to all, to ask one another, um, you know, to when coming to like a beginner's instruction, to go to many beginner's instructions because we have numerous people teaching them and they all have their own take, their own, I mean, it's all grounded in the same practice, but each person is different and you will naturally resonate with one person maybe more than you do with another person, you have a different perspective. Right. So, let me pause right here, and there's so much more I could say about this, and ask if there are any questions, <coughs> anything that I have said this time, or remaining from the last time I, I broached this topic of what is Zen practice. Yeah, yeah. I have it. Sometimes I, I feel like the forms uh, is a way to create sangha. I don't know if you are create and maintain. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, one really like daily example is chanting. So, how many of you, when you first came to Zen Center, or you maybe now, just like chanting, you just put off by chanting? Yeah. <laughs> I love uh, even people who have like been on the Donnery over years, it's great. It's great. Um, yeah. So being put off by chanting, do you, do you have a sense of why? Uh, maybe I don't want to ask why. But oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I feel like we're all here. I mean, our identity is not like our country or our language or whatever, but. I find it very strange that we are chanting in Japanese when we're all here in the United States, pretty much. Okay, so specifically, you're thinking Japanese chanting, as opposed to like other chanting. I mean, okay. I used to kind of dislike all chanting because it felt like like military or something, mm -hmm. like some kind of just even like it felt like kind of depressing the way we we're chanting. This mono like, monosyllabic, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. very, like, <laughs> drone kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of have also, and, and also like um, conditioning, like conditioning to think a certain way. But I, uh -huh. um, when I moved here, I had a very like cathartic experience chanting, like almost something magical moving through me. And now I can definitely feel how I am connected to people through chanting and how putting voice in my body is chanting. But yeah, mm -hmm. the, the Japanese thing and also the fact that it's <laughs> like so low and I'm a woman and when I when during the conference I was like the only woman here for a couple uh, chants uh, and it was really hard for me to chant and sing because it was so low thank you thank you for that does anyone want to add to that what they don't like it? yes um, so organized religion is generally scary to me and I feel like so much negative has come from it. Mm -hmm. And chanting sure. has always been a manifestation of that to me. It has... It has hymns, like singing hymns. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also um, I, I agree with or connect with Misha in terms of it's really transformed for me. Um, and I, I think for me, I just try to... Um, like everything I'm trying... Everything I do, including chanting, is letting go of myself. Um, so, and that would include letting go of what my notions of organized religion are, or what, yeah, what they are, like specifically in me, or what they need for me, or something, so. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Nathan? Um, I was just going to add to both of those things, uh, specifically the organized religion part, the, yeah. the Christianity in my case. Um, that is... That's definitely my first experience of it. It's like, whoa, this is like church, and I'm not interested in this. And I just had a conversation with somebody who did this recently. Um, it was their first time here. I wasn't here, but somebody that was close to me came. And he was like, what do you think about that? And I 
was like, oh yeah, but, and I told him, I was like, as soon as it happened, you know, and to go off of what you were saying earlier, for me, the thing is, oh good, I hate this. Yeah. Good. This is, yeah. This is what I'm here for. Thank you. Yes, exactly. That's sort of the point of it, is that precisely that I don't like it. Right. You know? This is uncomfortable. This yeah. is making me feel uncomfortable. This is bringing up stuff in me that's like, whoa, but, but, if it brings up things that are uncomfortable that actually feel unsafe, then you probably wouldn't have the same feeling of it's okay to do it. So if we were at a different Zen center where maybe say the teacher was like, stopped service and started shouting at people and hitting them with a stick and saying, chant louder, or what, you know, maybe it would be like, whoa, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> I mean, for most people. I mean, I wouldn't have stayed in a Zen center with people <laughs> that made, maybe, unless I was like, I want to do this as Zen. Yeah. Uh, something I was thinking about during the summer chats, uh, and I also had a lot of the same thoughts uh, and impressions as some of the people spoke, but uh, some of the words, when we were chanting them, I was asking myself, do I really believe what these words are saying? Uh -huh. And in some of them, I think the answer was no. Yeah. And I think, like you were saying in your speech, or your talk, uh, one of the reasons some of us are attracted to Zen is we're looking for like authenticity yeah. that maybe we haven't found somewhere else. Yeah. And to me, to chant something that I don't necessarily believe or agree in, kind of felt like the opposite. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, personally, I don't know if it's good that all beings should be yeah yeah that comes up a lot also in the you know every month we do a full moon ceremony where we chant the precepts and I remember as a new student being like I don't know about this am I I mean it's because you're like saying the words are like I vow to do this thing and I'm like I'm not gonna say it I don't know what this means I'm not going to say something because it's it's you know it would be inauthentic for me to do so. So yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Just say it with your fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Did I do that? No, I have. Though. You have. <laughs> I mean, early on, especially, right? like all this stuff was like, you know, <laughs> see someone bow and run, just leave, right? Like, why is someone groveling? I don't want to be around yeah. grovelers. Grovelers, yeah. Sharing something? Yes, sharing. Oh. <laughs> I was just going to comment um, that uh, I was kind of turned off also by chanting in Japanese. But uh, I went and looked up the chants and got the English translation. And then when I, now when I do it, I remember some of the lines and I feel mm -hmm. an affinity toward it. Mm -hmm. We, I don't think that we chant anything in Japanese that we don't chant in English as well. Some of the chants that we do are actually Duranis, which means that they're, they're like magical incantations that are not about the meaning, and they're actually from, they're, they're originally in, not even Sanskrit. I mean, they're, they're like, no, not Pali. I don't know what, but they're like root syllables mm -hmm. that are then transliterated into Chinese when they move to China, and then into Japanese, and then into English. So they're the syllable structures that don't have, I mean, they have some loose meaning, and you can look those up, mm -hmm. right? But like, for example, we chant the Heart Sutra in Japanese and English. I guess the Enmei Juku Kanangyo is, a, uh, is a, you know, an homage to compassion that we do in uh, we used to do it in English, both in English and, and Japanese, but it was not, again, it's like, it's not quite Japanese. So some of the magical incantations of it, oh, wow, maybe that was a whole other, you know, can of worms. Magical incantations? What are we doing here? <laughs> um, yes, yes. Isn't it true that um, for the Dharanis that we chant in Japanese, also that, from what I've heard, Japanese people don't, also don't know what they mean? Right. Like and neither do the Chinese. 
Right. That there are some key terms like homage and like, you know, the Daesh Indranis, like there's all this about the blue necked one, I think it's a reference to Shiva. Like, yeah. So, and again, it's not in the, you know, it's the meaning of it's not in the, in the words, right? Um, but the one thing I will say, just to, to get to the Japanese question, the why do we chant in Japanese? This is, this is a question that American or Western sanghas that are non-Japanese struggle with, you know, that are Zen lineage temples. This question of like, well, why are we chanting in Japanese at all? Like, we should just get rid of the Japanese. And some sanghas have. Um, the one really good reason, I think, of why we still chant in Japanese is that the Japanese doesn't change. The English changes. Every sangha has this, like, oh, let's take this word out and put this other word in. And that's, you know, whereas the Japanese, it's just like, it's fixed and it's been fixed for a long time. And it's kind of the root text. So when people chant it, everyone, if you know the chant, which if you hang around Zen centers for any length of time, you will eventually, if they're chanting in Japanese, it'll just become like, you'll, you'll know it, whether you think you've tried to memorize it or not. Um, and so there's that feeling of like, we're all doing, we all know how to do this. And it's not like, oh, wait a minute, you're using the other translation. And why is it like extending versus penetrating or, you know, all these different like lines. I actually kind of had another, I guess like almost like physical kind of understanding of why we're chanting in Japanese. And like when we were sitting around the table after the conference with the priest talking about like what America did to Japan and how like a lot of the culture has been lost and how Zen Buddhism is a gift that came to America from Japan and maybe like part of keeping the Japanese traditions and customs alive is a way of like almost making penance for what we did and Mm. acknowledging Mm, the gift that came from that culture. It's certainly acknowledging a, uh, a history and a lineage, and that is another part of Zen that is very important. Whether it's important, you know, it becomes important to you personally or not, in terms of the tradition of Soto Zen, lineage is hugely important. And there's reasons for that, political reasons back in, you know, the 1200s in Japan, or before, you know, in, in China, like, you know, knowing your family, the family that you belong to is very important. And so like having a lineage, being able to trace our lineage all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha, that becomes very uh, part of the culture of, of uh, Zen as well. So yeah, knowing, you know, being able to, ch- able to chant in Japanese. The other thing I just want to say about the, the experience of chanting in Japanese, because Japanese is this very monosyllabic, you know, ba, you know, kanji, zaibo, satsu, gyoji, it's, very easy to chant. It's easy to chant and it's easy to have everyone on the same word. And the way you pronounce the word doesn't change. It's not like you come from this region and you you know, pronounce gyo, gyo. Like that would be a different word in Japanese. So like it's very easy for it to, if you're, you know, if the sangha building part of it is we're all doing the same thing and being able to find the harmony in it with all of our different voices male, female, high, low, you know, all of the different voices to, ch- to be able to find that harmony, that is sangha building. That's one way to build sangha. Jane. Um, I'm really fascinated by other people's aversion to chanting being related <laughs> to uh, religion. And I hadn't, or, or, you know, hadn't thought of that. And I think, I thought to my own experience of chanting has always, because I didn't come from a religious family, has been in the context of protest and activism. It's voluntary and I'm connecting with other people. And I thought of this time that somebody asked one of my activist friends, like, why do you go to protests? Why aren't you just preaching to the choir? Uh Yes, yes, no, I've heard that one, but (laughs) aren't you just preaching to the choir? And his response was, well, sometimes the choir needs to sing. Mm-hmm. And I felt like maybe that's what that's beautiful. we're getting to. Yeah. Sometimes the choir needs to sing. Right. Now, we culturally 
like we come from different cultures and have but you know there's sometimes like everyone knows the same kind of thing because they all came from the same culture whether it's a nursery rhyme you know a bed a lullaby right and so having these kinds of things that are like our customs like it's nice to have those customs now we don't want to have those customs to the extent of like oh i'm going to hang out with people with who have my customs and not other customs right so but each of us i guess none of us grew up chanting in Japanese. Is that correct? Me, me neither, despite having a Japanese mother. I didn't chant in Japanese. Um, so like, it's kind of like, <laughs> and this feeling of, because so much, not so much, but there's quite a bit of emphasis on the lineage and in Zen, the particular school of Zen, you don't have to be denominate, denominational. Right? You don't have to be denominational about your Zen practice, but when you, you know, for this, at least this place right now, and I don't want to make any assumptions about, you know, where this place is going or what, the, what lies ahead, but this has been a Soto Zen temple. It, didn't, it was, you know, it didn't start out that way. It started out, by, it started out by a group of people who didn't know what it wanted to be. They just wanted to practice Zen. They wanted to sit together, right? And it could have gone in any direction, and it still could, right? But as a Soto Zen temple, there's like there's this phrase that I say a lot, or I refer to a lot, that is kind of it's a, a phrase of Soto Zen that's memitsu no kafu, and that's in the Japanese, and it means careful attention to detail is the family way, or the wind of the family house. Literally. It's like it's the wind of the family house. So it's kind of like this is in, you know, this is so cultish, right? But you're all like part of joining this new family. And if you come here and stay here and practice here, whether you want to or not, you're joining it. There's a, there's a cultural aspect of American Soto Zen in Austin, <laughs> a particular brand in Austin, right? Because it's not the same as if you went to Milwaukee Zen Center or to, you know, Chapel Hill or San Francisco Zen Center. Different vibe, right? And this is true in Japan. Right? In Japanese temples, even if they're all Soto Zen, some of them have an emphasis, like the abbot happens to be a, you know, happens to be a runner. So like, part of the practice is we get up every morning and we put on our running shoes and we run. <laughs> and you become one of the monks of Hiei, right? There's like different, you know, or you have somebody who's like really into, you know, being a chef. You go to Great Vow Monastery up in uh, the Portland area in Oregon and you do marimba. I am not kidding. They are, they've got this awesome marimba group. <laughs> is, this, is that Zen? Is it essential Zen? It's not essential. Is it Zen? Absolutely, because they're doing it with their full body and mind and out of a care and love and way of being together in Sangha. I think I've gone on for much longer than I intended to. <laughs> So I'm going to just end right here with actually reading. I wanted to read that uh, quote from the Norman Fisher article on Zen practice, talking about uh, what is Zen practice. And like he's talking about the effort. Right? We've talked about effort quite a bit in this uh, time together as well. Like, What's our effort? So he says, what will all this effort do for you? Ah, oh, the bottom line. <laughs> His answer, everything and nothing. You will become a Zen student, devoted to your ongoing practice, to kindness and peacefulness, and to the ongoing endless efforts to understand the meaning of time, the meaning of your existence, the reason why you were born and will die. You will still have plenty of challenges in your life. You will still feel emotion, possibly more now than ever. But the emotion will be sweet, even if it is grief or sadness. Many things, good or bad, happen in a lifetime, but you won't mind. You will see your life and your death as a gift, a possibility. This is the essential point of Zen Buddhism. It's a great article. You should just, uh, if you Google Norman Fisher, what is Zen practice, you'll find it in Aunt Lion's Roar. But that's those last words of it. And uh, yeah, it's a really beautiful way of putting it. So... Uh, I have one more talk before I step down as the head teacher of the Austin Zen Center. 
and I think it will be part three. <laughs> where, because I, I really wanted to tell you some Zen stories, not even from our lineage, actually. I wanted to talk about uh, some Zen stories about one of our uh, cousins in our lineage, Matsu, uh, who I did mention the last time we, we spoke. He's the one with the, you know, the walked around like a ox and he's got the you know fierce glare of a tiger and his tongue managed like when he stuck his tongue out he could like wrap it over his nose I mean these are like these little physical descriptions that we have of this Chinese Zen master from the 8th century but I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stories okay koans which is not a big studying koans is not a big uh, well I should say Going through a koan curriculum is not a f um, one of the main features of Soto Zen Buddhism. Rinzai Zen Buddhism is much more like that's part of the stu like koan study. It's like psh, you go through and you pass koans. And in, uh, in Soto Zen, you won't find that. You'd have to kind of go outside, which is great. You know, there's no uh, sectarianism there. If you want to do koan study, find a Rinzai teacher who's been trained and do it, right? But koans are family stories and so we do study koans we just don't study them in the way of like you know okay now you're going to go you know be tested on your understanding um, all of us have koans that we're studying in our lives some of them make it into collections of zen koans maybe some of the ones you're working on right now in your daily life will end up in a koan collection somewhere sometime with multiple commentaries Thank you very much for being here, and uh, let's continue this conversation while we while we can. <laughs>